But if you have a Bible, either a printed copy like I have here or a digital copy on your phone, let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now, open up your copy of God's Word with me to Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I had some help this week on my message. I was in the office and I was walking around and And I saw nine-year-old Wrigley Poston sitting out in the office there. And I asked her, I said, will you help me with my message? And I thought she would be quiet and cower and not say a word. And she said, yes. And so I gave her my scripture and I said, now are you going to help me? And she said, yes. And so last night I got an email from her mother with her notes And so, let me read to you Wrigley's message before I give you my message. Today, we're going to be talking about God's creation. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God created him. Male and female, he created them. God created each and every one of us in his perfect image. We need to take care of our bodies, respect ourselves and others, no matter how they act to us. We shouldn't judge other people for how they look and the way their voice sounds. The way everyone looks and how their voice sounds is perfect in God's eyes. In Genesis 1:28, it says this, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created all the animals on the earth, and we need to respect them and their territories. We should be thankful for our atmosphere, God, ourselves, humans, insects, and animals. Way to go, Wrigley. Let's give Wrigley a hand. Stand up, Wrigley. I agree with everything you said. I'm just not sure that we need to respect the insects. I don't know if I like the insects. Some of them are okay. Others, I don't know. I know in some countries, they're starting to eat insects. Do you want to eat insects? Me either. Me either. Let them keep the insects, right? Wow. But I'm going to go in a little bit different direction than Wrigley went in. When I was growing up, every year I would watch the Wizard of Oz. It came on on Sunday nights, and we went to church every Sunday night, but as soon as church was over, typically in the fall, I would rush home, and I would watch The Wizard of Oz. The Library of Congress says that The Wizard of Oz is the most seen film in movie history. Did you get that? More people have seen The Wizard of Oz than any other film in human history. Now, in case you or living under a rock, or you've never heard of the Wizard of Oz, let me just share with you what it's about. It's about a little girl named Dorothy, her little dog Toto, who get caught up in a tornado, and they're transported to this magical land called Oz. And when Dorothy and Toto wake up in Oz, she utters 
this noun famous line, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And that phrase has become a part of, of American culture. It's become a part of our language. It, it means that we have stepped out of what is normal. We have entered a place or a circumstance that, that is unfamiliar, that's strange, that's uncomfortable. For Dorothy and, and Toto, things were different. Things in Oz were unrecognizable. Now, I've got to confess to you that, that I've had those same thoughts and feelings over the last several years. When I look at our cultural and moral landscape today, compared to what it was when I was growing up, I think I'm not in Kansas anymore. When I look at the cultural and moral landscape of when I was raising my children compared to the day, I think I'm not in Kansas anymore. And when I look at the cultural and moral landscape of today compared to what it was like when my first grandchild was born just 10 years ago, I think I'm not in Kansas anymore. The speed in which things have and are changing is disturbingly breathtaking. Things that used to be fodder for late-night comedy have now become reality and what concerns me and leaves me with the thought that we've left Kansas far behind is not only the speed at which society has abandoned traditional, moral, biblical values, but the distance that we've traveled in such a relatively short period of time. We find ourselves in a society where people have not only rejected God's word, but we rejected God's design for men for women, and for the family. And in doing so, we've rejected common sense, and we've rejected science. Things that almost everyone would agree were not normal are now considered mainstream. Things that we once knew were sin became tolerated, and now they are celebrated. Now, for you that are a little younger, let me give you a little of a timeline if I can. In the 1960s, we had the sexual revolution, which opened the door to sexual freedom or, or let me say, sexual promiscuity. In 1969, Ronald Reagan signed into law the nation's first no-fault divorce law, which opened the door to a soaring divorce rate and all the pain and all the problems that followed with it. In 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that the government had no right to limit abortions, which opened the door to abortion on demand. And since that time, over 65 million babies have been murdered through abortion. In the 1980s and the 1990s, the rate of cohabitation soared and the rate of marriages began to decline. By the time we entered into the 2000s, not only was marriage being questioned, but the very definition of marriage was being questioned. Was marriage just for a man and a woman, or could two women be married? Could two men be married? And this plan to change the social fabric of our land was, was clearly laid out in a book entitled After the Ball Drops, which shared the strategy of the gay rights revolution. 
And they followed that book to a T so that in 2015, the Supreme Court redefined marriage by declaring same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. Now, we probably thought in 2015 that we couldn't fall any further than we already had. But today, we have men identifying as women. We have women identifying as men. And we even have people transitioning. They are surgically changing their bodies to become the sex or gender that they identify with. And many have not only embraced this as normal, but they say that it's good. President Joe Biden said in a statement on March the 31st, transgender Americans shape the nation's soul. Now, and I agree with him. Transgenders are shaping our soul, but not in a good way, but in a bad way. And Assistant Secretary of Health Rachel Levine, a transgender himself, said this, transgender procedures of minors have the highest support of the Biden administration. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And then he went on to say, changing kids' genders will soon be fully embraced. God, help us. In less than 60 years, we have embraced practices that I think would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. And yet God's word is crystal clear on these issues. And so this morning, as we begin our series on the family, I want us to start with three truths that are foundational to the family. Now, the first one is going to lay the groundwork, and the next two are clearly laid out in God's Word. But each of these three are foundational to what we're going to believe about the family today. So let's begin with the very first verse of the Bible, verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, when there was nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. The way that we look at our world, the way that we look at life, the way that we look at ourselves will be determined by what we believe about this very first phrase in the Bible. If we believe that at the beginning of everything, there was a God who created everything, the heavens, what is out there, the earth, what is down here, then that will impact the way that we live. It means that life is not a cosmic accident. It means that we are not here by chance. It means that there is a creator, a designer, who has a purpose in everything and he has a purpose for everything that he created. It means that our life has a purpose. Our life has a plan. And the creator gives us directions to follow to live according to that plan. Now, let me just quickly say that there are only two options when we look at creation, when we look at the beginning of everything. You see, we're going to either believe that there is an all-powerful God who created everything out of nothing, or we're going to believe that somehow matter has always existed and through random 
chance, somehow, some way, the universe and everything in it came into existence. Now, to be honest with you, the second choice makes absolutely no sense to me. It is much more logical to believe that there is an eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created rather than to believe that, that matter is eternal and everything just happened by random chance. And what you need to understand is this. Since God is the creator of all things, God gets to define all things. God is the one who determines how his creation is defined, how his creation is supposed to work. And yet today, we somehow have come to the belief that we, the created, get to define ourselves. Now, I want to thank Michael Gettings and the creative team for designing these sets for our family series. Let's give them a hand. This... This is our kitchen scene, and, and as we go through this series, we're going to have a family room scene as well, and we're going to have, kind of switch back and forth, but today we're in the kitchen. Now, now, my wife doesn't let me in the kitchen very often to cook. When I'm in the kitchen, it's to clean. She'll let me clean up the table. She'll let me wash the dishes, put things in the dishwasher. She'll let me put the dishes on the table, getting ready to eat, but she normally doesn't let me cook. Except when she's gone, when she's gone, I'm forced to cook. Like this weekend, she's, she's gone. And so suppose while she's gone, I decide that, that I want something sweet to eat. And so I, I go into our pantry, and I open up the pantry, and I find this swan's down cake flour. And I think, cake? Man, that sounds good. And so I look on the back, and there's this recipe for simple chocolate cake. Simple. I like that. Chocolate. You can't beat chocolate. And, and so I look at the directions and the ingredients, and here's the ingredients. I need three ounces of unsweetened chocolate. I need one stick of unsalted butter. I need two and a half cups of light brown sugar. I need three eggs. I need one and a half teaspoons of vanilla extract. I need two teaspoons of baking soda. I need one teaspoon of salt. I need two and a half cups of the swan's down cake flour. I need one cup of sour cream and one cup of boiling water. I think, you know, I think I can follow the directions and do this. But the truth of the matter is I've been eating a pretty good bit lately. And I hope you can't notice, but I put on a little, uh, a little weight. And so I decide I don't need the sugar. I want some sweets, but I don't want the sugar. And so I'm going to leave out the sugar from the recipe. I can do that. It's my cake. I can make this cake however I want to. But I can promise you this. If I leave the sugar out of this cake and I put all the other ingredients in the cake, the cake is not going to taste like I think it should taste. It's not going to be very good. Now, I may, over time, be able to cultivate a taste for that nasty-tasting cake. But the very first time I put that cake in my mouth, I'm going to think, this isn't right. This isn't how this cake is supposed to the taste. You see, you need to understand 
that when God created us, if he did, and he did, then he gets to define, he gets to determine how everything is cooked, how everything is made, and how everything is defined. He gets to determine that because he's the maker of the cake. Now, I can go off script. I can do it my way. I can decide I don't want to follow God's directions. I don't want to follow God's way. But if I go off script and do it my way, I can promise you that it's not going to go the way it was supposed to go. And that's where we are right now in our society, in our culture. We say that we believe in God. We say that we believe in this all-powerful creator who made everything, and yet God has said things to us. He's defined what is right and what is wrong, and, and we've taken some things and we've said we don't like that. And we've taken other things and said we do like this, and we've left things out and we've redefined everything until now we find ourselves in this place that we're at today. Listen, if God is the creator of all things. God gets to define how things are to work. That includes the family and everything else in society. Here's the second truth. It's found in verse 27. Now, when we move to verse 26, God tells us that on the sixth day, he began to make all of the animals, and then he made human beings in his own image and in his own likeness. And then verse 27 says this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Now, if your Bible is open, underline that phrase, male and female. God made them male and female. He created them. You see, the Bible is clear. When God created human beings, he created two genders. He created male and he created female. Now, today we have all kinds of crazy ideas. Some say that sex and gender are two totally different things. The idea that a person's biological sex at birth and their gender may not be the same. Now, where in the world did that idea come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. It came from a psychologist in the 60s. In the midst of the sexual revolution a psychologist came up with this idea that a person's sex and a person's gender isn't necessarily the same thing. And so in the midst of a sexual revolution where anything goes, a psychologist comes up with this idea that noun has been embraced by many in the mainstream. And so today, we have parents that don't fill out the child's birth certificate declaring whether they're a boy or a girl because that's yet to be Determined. In Australia, about a week and a half ago, 60 Minutes did a segment that, was, that said this in their tagline. Meet the Thabies. Not baby boys, not baby girls. The new parenting trend letting young children choose their gender. Now, I've got news for you. If you're a parent, you don't need to let your children choose what they're going to eat much less what their gender is. Their minds are not developed enough to make those kinds of decisions if those decisions could be made. 
And to turn those kind of decisions over to a child is the most foolish thing in the world. One parent in this segment who was raising their child without gender said this, we didn't assign a gender at birth. We're not trying to eliminate gender. We're just really hoping kids find their own path to it. So one day, a little boy is going to wake up and go, I really feel like a girl. And the parents are going to embrace that and say, you can be a girl. That's foolish. Another parent said, I'm letting this little person be who they want to be. That's absolutely ludicrous. Now, understand, our sex is not determined at birth. Our sex is revealed at birth. Our sex is determined at conception. In Psalm 139, it says this, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. So gender is something, sex is something that is defined by God in the womb. Now, are there instances, ever so slight, where a child is born and their gender is difficult to determine? Yes, that happens. It can happen. It does happen. But it very seldom happens. And when it does happen, most of the time, the doctors are able to determine and they're able to make wise choices. At least, they used to make wise choices. And so some believe that, that sex and gender are not the same thing. There are other people today who believe that we can be binary. And what that means is we can be both genders. Some people even say that God was binary. Since we're created in God's image and he created male and female, then God must have been male and female. And yet that goes against everything that the Bible says. The Bible makes it clear every time it describes God, it describes him in the masculine tense. God is described as a male. And some of you may not like that. Some of you may think that's chauvinist or sexist. And I would say get over it. Because that's what the Bible teaches. You see, God created the male and the female different yet complementary. And what I mean is that God created the male with certain characteristics, certain attributes that are a help to the woman, to the female, to help her become all that God wants her to be. And God created the woman with certain characteristics, certain attributes that complement the man to help him become all that God wants him to be. God did not create the man and the woman the same. He created them different distinct. And if you continue to read the creation story, you discover that God didn't even create man and woman at the same time. He created man from the dust of the earth. And we are told that he created woman from a man's rib. Men and women were created at different times for different purposes. God made sex, gender, different, distinct for a reason. The final thing I want us to see is that God established clear guidelines for marriage. Once God created male and female, man and woman, 
He gave them the first reason for marriage. And the very first reason for marriage was procreation. Verse 28 says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Now listen, procreation, having babies, isn't the only purpose of marriage, but it is the first purpose of marriage. God created a man and a woman's body so that they could come together and through a miracle of God, produce life. Can two women have a baby? Absolutely not. A woman cannot give birth without a man. She has to be inseminated by a man to give birth. She may artificially be inseminated, but a man has to be a part of the picture for a birth to take place. Two women by themselves can never have a baby. Can two men have a baby? Absolutely not. A man does not have a womb. A man cannot produce an egg which must be fertilized for a baby to be born. A man cannot do that. We are living in a crazy, mixed-up world. Now listen to what it continues to say in Genesis 2, verse 24. It says, this explains why a man, a male, leaves his father, a male, and his mother, a female, and is joined to his wife, a female, and the two are united into one. Every time the Bible speaks of marriage, it speaks of a man and a woman. Jesus reiterated this truth in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul built on this truth in his epistles, in his letters, And though the Bible never explicitly mentions gay marriage, the Bible does condemn homosexuality as immoral and unnatural in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 declares homosexual desires and actions to be shameful and unnatural. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says that homosexuals are wrongdoers who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You see, since homosexuality is condemned in the Bible, it follows that homosexual marriage is not God's will and would in fact be sinful. It is clear that God established the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. So, what went wrong? How did we get from what the Bible teaches to where we are today? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God gave man one command. And we could talk about why God gave this one command all day long, but that's irrelevant. God is God, and God can give whatever commands God wants. And so in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God said, you can do anything in the garden. You can eat anything that comes from the garden except fruit from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then Satan comes along and he convinces Eve to doubt God's word. In Genesis chapter 3, It says, you won't die 
The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he, he ate it too. You see, man chose to believe the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God's word. And man has been believing that lie ever since. We believe that our way is better than God's way. We believe that we know more than God does. And we get to the New Testament and it says in Romans chapter 1, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. Listen to that phrase, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Then in verse 25, it says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. Did you hear what it said? People are suppressing the truth. They know it, but they suppress it. They don't like the truth, so they hold it down and they choose to believe a lie rather than the truth. Back when I was in my 20s, I was living in the upstate. And I got a call from the hospital telling me that there was a young man in there who, who had AIDS. Would I come and see him? And this was in the height of the, the AIDS epidemic when AIDS was just becoming um, well-known and all of these things. There was a lot of questions about it. And I said, absolutely. So I went to the hospital and sat down with this young man and I began to talk to him. And, and, and I don't know why except, except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God just somehow, someway gave me a heart and a love for this young man. And I began to talk to him. And I shared the gospel with him. And I told him, if you will just simply repent of your sins, acknowledge that you sinned against God, ask Jesus to forgive you and save you, and turn your life over to him, he'll save you. And he'll give you a brand new start. And he said, I haven't sinned. And I looked at him and said, I believe with all my heart you know what you're doing is sin. With tears in my eyes, I prayed with him. I left his room. And I went to another part of the hospital to make a, another visit. And this was before cell phones. And minutes later, probably about 10 or 15 minutes later, there was a call on the, the hospital intercom for me to go back to this person's room. And I went into his room and he was weeping like a baby. And he looked me in the eyes. And he said, I know the way I'm living is sin against God. I need God to forgive me. And right there in his room, he prayed. And he asked God to forgive him for his sin of homosexuality. And all of the other sins in his life. He trusted the blood of Jesus to cover his sins. And as best he knew how, he gave his life to Jesus. And right there in that room, we rejoiced over new life in Christ. Now, he was discharged from the hospital shortly after that. He didn't live in union, and so I never touched base with him again. Don't know where he went to. 
But I believe with all my heart, if, if he died of his AIDS, when I get to heaven, he's going to be one of the first people there greeting me. We're going to hug and we're going to rejoice because Jesus saves lost sinners. And if I die before him, I'm going to be at the gate welcoming him. Then aren't you glad you're home? Aren't you thankful for the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ? You see homosexuality, transgenderism, all these things, they're no different than all the other sins that, that many of us in this room commit. They're sins that cause death and pain and destruction to lives. But the grace of God can forgive, can save, restore, and make us new. If we'll turn to Jesus. Here's what I know. God is the creator. <laughs> and because he's the creator, he gets to determine right and wrong. He gets to define truth. God does that. And God has said very clearly that there are two genders. There's male and there's female. He created us distinct and different for a reason, to complement one another. And God established marriage for a man and for a woman so that it would be a picture of how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's what God's Word teaches. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you believe God's Word, I want to warn you. We're in a bad place. Our nation, apart from a movement of God, is headed for destruction. We're headed that way. And our only hope is a move of God. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who controls the Senate or the House. The only way things are going to change is the Holy Spirit change our hearts. Who's living in our hearts. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you believe God's Word, then I want to beg you in just a moment to come to this altar. Let's fill this altar with believers crying out to God, asking God to bring revival to our land. Forgive us for our sins and restore us to where we need to be. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure all of this out, I'm just here to tell you, bottom line, you have to decide whether there's a God and if there is a God, you have to determine whether you're going to give him your life or not. You're either going to live in rebellion against your creator, or you're going to humble yourself before him and seek to live for him. That's your choice. And so if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I beg you today, quit living in rebellion. Humble yourself before Almighty God, trust His gift of grace through Jesus to save you and let Him save you. In just a moment, we're going to sing and our pastors are going to be down front. Our altar is going to be open. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and you're ready to do that with all of your being, 
I want to invite you to come forward. But for everyone who is a Christian who longs for God to move, I'm asking you to come to this altar and flood this altar with your tears, asking God to move. Father God, this is your time. And I ask you right now to have your way in each and every one of our lives. Lord, we're desperate for you. We, we long for you because we know that apart from you, we have no hope. And so, Father God, please have your way in us. Lord, I pray that you will begin a revival today in our midst that, Lord, can, can change our families, that can change our city, our county, and, and, Lord, even our state and our nation. Oh, Lord, do it today, I pray in Jesus' name.